2: From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Big hour this hour. We're going to talk to Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group about the 2024 20, top global risks. Uh, and they're thought-provoking. They're interesting. Um, if you like to worry about things, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it's it's a good review of the what are going to probably be the big big stories around the world um, this year. And one of the interesting things they've done this year is they've had uh, they've put out a list of a few red herrings too, things that have been big or much discussed that are probably going to settle down. Which include, believe it or not, the U.S. China crisis. Can't wait to ask Ian about that. So that is the second half of this hour. Hope you can stay tuned. As always, if you can't try to grab the podcast later, uh, subscribe to Armstrong and Getty On Demand. A little DEI check-in here. I thought this was interesting and instructive in a way. It reminds me a little bit of that New York Times stuff about immigration in that Axios, which we'll touch on, is a youngish leftyish politics website. And the headline is companies are backing away from DEI, which is unquestionably true. And we can get into why in a minute. But um, they lead with this. Laudable goals like achieving equity. Eh, Let's stop. Stopping right there. Well, maybe we'll plunge on. I'll finish the sentence. And diversity and making people feel included have become weaponized terms. And now corporate America is navigating the minefield. Well, in that one sentence, they have absolutely illustrated the problem. They didn't know they did, but they did. Laudable goals like achieving equity. Back to the buzzer. Equity is not equality. It's socialism. It's communism. It's equal results for all, regardless of talent or effort, all determined by your race or your creed or your sexuality or your sex practices or how many piercings you have. Equity is a dirty word. They've gotten a long way. Because it sounds like equality. It sounds like roughly the same thing as equality, but it's not. It's something very, very different. In fact, it could be argued, it's the opposite of equality. We've quoted Thomas Sowell many times, the brilliant author, um, and is the father of three fabulous human beings. I can attest to this. You can take two or three children from the same household, same upbringing, same morals, same economic status, you know, mostly. Although the younger kid, which I was not, usually has a better life than their first couple. Anyway. um, You can take three kids from the same family, same upbringing, and they will have wildly different outcomes to their lives in many cases. Trying to ensure that those three kids have the same outcome is a near impossibility. And think of all of the Throttling back of the one kid, or taking away from the other kid, or huge inf- infusions of cash to the second kid, or whatever—I mean, it's impossible to achieve in one family of children raised under the same roof. So, how in the world do you think you're going to do that across the society? It's—it's it's beyond an impossibility. It's an idiocy. So, laudable goals like achieving equity nuh-uh, and diversity—again, eh, as we all know at this point. They don't mean diversity, they mean absolute cult-like party-line lockstep ideology that might happen to have a Hispanic dude and a black girl, and then you can claim diversity, but the last thing it is is the most significant diversity you need in a political system like ours. We have a system where ideas clash and policies clash. Not where colors clash. We've worked like hell to to end any of that garbage. And it is garbage. Racism is disgusting. You are the epitome of white privilege. Oh, hey, you sit down, lady. Nancy Mace there. She was actually haranguing Hunter Thompson, not me. But, um, so yeah, in, in their opening sentence, Axios has highlighted the problem. D.E.I. has twisted and perverted the language to make their goals, which are neo-Marxism and conformity of thought, sound admirable. They're not admirable at all. And more and more people are waking up to that, particularly in the wake of the gals uh, there in Congress, the the presidents of the university testifying and in, in all the fallout from that. I've been wanting to get to this essay from Ben Sass, former congressman, a g- great thinker who's... um. Now the president of Florida, University of Florida. Yeah, and uh, we'll touch on that briefly after a quick word from our friends at Oxford Gold Group. They make the point, and Ian Bremmer's report, actually, the number one risk for 2024 is the United States against itself. Are we so at our throats we can maintain our stability as a society and economy? We'll talk to Ian about that, but... Oxford Gold wants you to know with everything going on in our country, we all find ourselves thinking about self-defense, whether it's home protection or financial protection against the financial chaos more than ever. One form of financial protection, and it's a classic, is diversification. Gold has often been used to protect assets against inflation. Gold, a global reserve asset, and countries are buying massive amounts of gold as a hedge against financial collapse. And it's time to protect yourself and invest in gold. Stop thinking things will just get better because they always have. They may or they may not. You need to look out for yourself and your family and our friends at the oxford gold group will help you understand why you need gold in your 401k that's right that's a thing and why you should have gold on hand it's easy it's simple oxford gold group there to help give them a call to order the investment guide or actually buy some precious metals 833-995-GOLD 833-995-GOLD Again, just to get the investment guide or to actually invest, it's up to you. 833-995-GOLD. Or go to oxfordgoldgroup.com slash free, oxfordgoldgroup.com slash free. Or again, 833-995-GOLD. Back to Ben Sass. thought he made a great case. What time is it? Yeah, I have time. He brings it against the DEI garbage. He says the three uh, heads of, of uh, the universities and Sally Cornbluth from the from MIT has so gotten away with what she did and what she said just because Liz McGill was so horrible from Penn and Claudine Gay from Harvard is horrible and a plagiarist. So old uh, Sally Cornbluth flew below the radar. Well, that's fine, and she's continuing to preach her. Uh, her indoctrination. But uh, Sass really brings it talking about how these people have become acolytes of the shallow new theology called intersectionality. This is neither a passing fad nor something that normies can roll our eyes at and ignore. He's calling us to fight. And I think he's absolutely right. As Andrew Sullivan presciently predicted a mere six years ago, the tenets of this all-consuming ideology have quickly spilled beyond trendy humanity departments at top 30 universities and his self-appointed priestly class as they tried to tirelessly enforce its ideology. And he talks about intersectionality. He teaches that the relative victim status of various groups is the deepest truth and the only thing you need to know about them. And that this framework must drive our interpretation of both natural and built reality. Victimology is everything. That's the only thing. Nothing matters more than victimology. All the sheeps and goats must be sorted. And, and I would love to just read this, but it would take half an hour because it's brilliantly written. And anybody who does not conform to this ideology is an awful human being, a racist, and they must be punished. I promise you. We have people listening right now who are run out of their careers for resisting this racist training, this horrible racist training. And I, I feel for you folks. And I just, I wish we had the ability to raise unlimited money to fight for you on your behalf. Peace in uh, Free Beacon. Federal Reserve, as they were battling uh, the uh, the inflation bomb, all of their staff had to undergo a DEI, a DEI training. The whole thing, uh, correct pronoun usage, white privilege, you have to use Latinx. Can you imagine? Nobody wants that. But the the, the Federal Reserve was taking these the struggle session, communist-style brainwashing re-education camp classes. They had the gender-bred man that shows that your, agenda, your your sex is your body, but your gender is how you feel and your orientation and your expression and the rest of it. It's incredible. We've talked about this plenty. It's reductive. It's It's ugly. If you don't act like a manly man, you're probably a woman. No, maybe you're just an effeminate dude. Maybe you're a gay dude. It's fine. You're a, you're a human being. You're an American citizen with all the rights and responsibilities thereof, and, and we don't hate you for that. We Welcome, my friends. Welcome, my brothers. Welcome, my fellow Americans. If you are an effeminate gay dude, you're still a dude. The rest of it's madness. And part of and I've hit this, but I want everybody to hear it. The whole pronoun thing, the whole calling a man a woman thing, it's not about morality. It's about your submission. If they can make you say, yes, that's a woman, or yes, that's a man, as a woman's eight months pregnant, or, or even a, a giving birth, you're supposed to say, yes, that's, that's, that's a man. That's submission, man. That's what they want. They want you on your knees. Anyway, it's all the lead up to this. This story is something. The headline is, it's a Florida woman who transitioned from female to male as a 14-year-old suing the American Academy of Pediatrics. She alleges she was whisked through the process as a minor by, and I quote from the suit, a collection of actors who prioritize politics and ideology over children's safety, health, and well-being. Isabel's now 20. She's suing her doctors in Rhode Island in a first-of-its-kind case. And she says, and and she's a shy person. She doesn't want attention. This poor kid. God, my heart goes out to her. She says, I really don't want this to happen to other vulnerable young girls. I don't want puberty to be the enemy. I don't want our natural biology to be the enemy. So here's what happened. And this is such a good example of what's going on. And I've known people who've struggled with this. She was sexually assaulted as a child. God bless her, and began precocious puberty at age eight. Jack brought this up the other day, how early the middle schoolers in his life are are, are 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 entering puberty. How shocking it is, and nobody really knows what's going on. There are theories, but nobody's sure. So she's assaulted at age eight sexually, then begins the transition of womanhood and She was sexually assaulted as a child. Then begins the transition of womanhood, which is intimidating and scary at best for young women. I've raised a couple of them. I've coached many of them. I know this. Not the way women know it, but I know it. At age eight, if you can imagine, after being raped, now she's got to confront the full bloom of female sexuality with the mind and heart of an eight-year-old. And she's terrified. She says, I decided to transition because just a series of unfortunate things that I, had, that I had tied in my mind to being female. And those things made me hate being female. So what did she do? She's online. She finds solace in a transgender activist community on Tumblr and thought, this is going to fix me. She learned from trans activists that fabricating suicidal ideation is a surefire way to get a testosterone prescription quickly. So at age 14, terrified, she did that. just that. Quote, I learned that from the internet that I had to convince my doctors and family that if they don't affirm me, I'm going to kill myself. She was referred to a gender clinic diagnosed with gender dysphoria by transgender health expert, Dr. Jason Rafferty. A monster, my opinion. I'm entitled to it. According to the lawsuit, he determined that, quote, she would benefit from being put on cross-sex hormones in a single visit that lasted less than an hour. The... Young woman alleges that her previous diagnoses of autism, ADHD, PTSD, were largely overlooked by her health care providers. They just said, no, she's transgender. Let's get her the chemicals. And they got her on that high-speed conveyor belt like so many poor young girls have been put on. There's more to this, but we're out of time. Stand up against this garbage, folks, if you can. It is garbage. You knew it in your heart. You could tell instinctively. They're telling me that I'm a racist if I'm against this. But this stuff is sick. You were right. More to come. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Thanks for tuning in. Ian Bremmer with the top risk to 2024 coming up next segment. Uh, One of the challenges of doing this job, I guess, of modern life really is you have access to so much uh, information, so much content, and so much of it is so interesting. A lot of it's garbage, too, and you have to sort through that, but... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm getting into the substack thing, and I subscribe to a couple, but I've realized I, I mean, there's like 30 times as many as I could possibly take in that I'm interested in. So you have to get really good at sorting it. But I came across um, a, a fellow by the name of uh, Emil Kierkegaard, who's a scientist of some sort. He's crazy smart. Um, but he, he looks into statistical studies and various, uh, stuff. he's obviously advanced in this, uh, and, and, and advanced in statistical um, analysis. But w- one thing he did recently that I came across that was so cool was uh, he looks at a bunch of uh, occupations and, and where they rank in terms of things like uh, agreeableness, uh, and uh, openness. I mean, like your big personality traits. Also, conscientiousness, and my favorite, neuroticism. Which professions have the most kooky people? Now, if you're neurotic, it's not like you're psychotic, but you're a handful. Can can we agree that that's a decent enough uh, definition of neurotic? You're a little wacky. And, and and radio is full of these people. I mean, you know, I, I do not deny that for a second. I wish Jack were here. He's probably got the flu, maybe. Um, and we, we're hoping he rallies ASAP, obviously. But, um, oh, my God, we, could, we, we should spend a segment one day just listing the really strange people we've worked with. Our first job together was in Wichita, Kansas uh, in 1992, if you can believe that, 32 years ago. Almost 32 years ago. Uh, And and the one common thread there was there were a couple of people, um, I'm going to use the one name, Stinky Randy, who is the overnight guy, who was one of the strangest Rangers I've ever come across in any uh, pursuit of my life. And then uh, I think we called her Hot Stinky, I can't remember her name. She was a, a single mom. One of those situations where some ne'er do well dip ass had made her pregnant, and she's got the kid now, and he's long gone. She was crazy cute. I mean, like melt your face hot, fellas, but stank like a horse—an aggressive <laughs> I mean, scent. Yes, and it was something. That was. This, I'm trying to think. And, and, and virtually everybody worked there was kooky. Um, in one way or another, a lot of really nice people too, and some really talented people. But holy cow, it was a loony bin of a place. Anyway, we'll talk about that someday. But I'm looking at this uh, this uh, chart of jobs with the highest and lowest mean scores in neuroticism, and your very lowest scores in neuroticism are database and network professors, health service managers, aircraft pilots. Finance managers, they tend to be very, very matter of fact. But I'm going to read you uh, down from the most neurotic to damn near the most neurotic. And I think you're going to say, oh, yeah, number one, actors, of course. You ever dated an actor? (laughs) Visual artists, creative, wonderful, the world needs them, but they're fruit nuts, right? Graphic and multimedia designers, they're just artists. Who are good at computers? Musicians, singers, and composers. Yep. Translators, interpreters, and other linguists. That one's interesting. Authors and other writers. And journalists. Round out the top, what is that? uh, Seven or eight. Most neurotic professions. Journalists right up there. Behind actors and singers. Not shocking. Top risks for 2024? Ian Bremer from Eurasia Group. Next, stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty
0: Show. There are questions about how much a second term of a Donald Trump presidency, second term, would be about retribution and looking backwards and grievances and how much would
1: be looking forward. I'm not going to have time for retribution. We're going to make this country so successful again. I'm not
2: going to have time for retribution. Donald Trump town hall meeting yesterday. I uh, selected that clip to lead into a discussion. With Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group, intentionally, uh, for reasons that we will explain in a moment. Every year when the top risks of the year come out, I feel like I felt as a little kid after ordering something from a cereal box that was going to take six to eight weeks for delivery. And 12 weeks later, when I'd completely forgotten I ordered it, I was thrilled to see it there in the mailbox. I always love reading and digesting the top risks of the year. And uh, Ian Bremer, president, founder of Eurasia Group, joins us. Ian, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm great. Happy New Year, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Right back at you. So uh, the top risks are interesting, as they always are. But what really caught my eye at first was what you call the red herrings, things we probably don't have to worry about so much, in particular,
3: the U.S.-China crisis. Wait a minute. We're fixated on that. Should we not be? Yeah, it, it was probably the biggest silver lining in the report. And, you know, in part, the Americans and the Biden administration Uh, having its hands so full with Russia, Ukraine and with the Middle East and with the elections, they really don't want a crisis with the Chinese and they're trying to build out regular military to military high level of engagement and on the diplomatic side on, and on the economic side. Not because they're going to suddenly we're going to start trusting each other, but rather when there are conflicts like over Taiwan or the South China Sea that we can respond and contain them. The Chinese don't have elections to worry about, but they have a seriously underperforming economy and they don't want anything to make that even worse so for for both reasons at least through the u.s elections i i think that this is going to be a better managed difficult relationship than we've seen over the last few years
2: so you want us to turn our watchful eye away from china i have to ask are you now or have you ever been a member of the chinese communist party
3: just oh, I think absolutely. it's a fair question. I mean, you know, okay. that's been a longstanding card carrying <laughs> member uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. I did get to China finally after having not been there through the pandemic um, a few weeks ago. And, and definitely that the, the the meetings I had uh, felt made me feel only more strongly that while they're. They're deeply unhappy about a whole bunch of things that they're facing from the Americans right now, that this is not the time. So it's not like they're suddenly becoming our friends, Mm -hmm. but there is a recognition they need to bide their time. And I I think that, frankly, in this environment, we'll take it.
2: So uh, as long as we're talking about China, risk number six is no China recovery. How strong are their economic headwinds? How much trouble are they in?
3: Uh, they're in a lot of trouble economically. For 50 years, they were the factory of the world, and that was really, really inexpensive labor that everyone wanted to go and get their production from. Well, their labor's gotten a lot more expensive. Um, There are political demands to start building stuff in other places like, hey, here in the United States and in Mexico and friendshoring with our buddies, semiconductors, critical minerals, all of this kind of stuff. So the broad model is turning against them at the same time as three years of zero covid. They turned around and said, okay, now everyone can get COVID. Let's open the economy. But the consumers aren't spending. They're saving because they don't feel like they can trust uh, a robust Chinese economy. Uh, youth unemployment's very high. They've got uh, a really ailing uh, real estate sector that they've produced into a bubble. But a lot of it is unproductive assets. And they've got a lot of local and corporate debt that is bad. And that is being you know, propped up by the Chinese banking system that's a closed economy. Uh, but the, no one can pay it off. So you put it all together I mean this isn't like China's going to start contracting but I mean 2 3% growth this year next year feels like feels robust in this mm. environment so if you look back on 2008 with the financial crisis and everyone's worried and it was the Chinese that put, you know, sort of hundreds of billions of dollars into, you know, stimulating the economy, shovel ready products and help the help the world grow again. That is not happening in 2024. Interesting. Love to
2: talk about that all day, especially since the Chinese Communist Party depends on economic growth and prosperity as their legit for their legitimacy. But let's do a yep. little bingo banga bongo on the top five. And uh, OK, I've summed up the Kurds. Let's dive in. Number one, the United States versus itself
3: is the top risk of the year. Do tell what you said in the opening that Trump Trump won't have time for retribution. But, I mean, Trump said he can, he, can, he can end the Ukraine war in a day. He said he only needs to be dictator for a day. So, I mean, with that kind of time management, how could he not find time for retro?
2: <laughs> well, I think that was what comes out of the north end of a south going bull, clearly. But um, uh, so the, the, this election season, you
3: expect to be ugly beyond ugly. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. economy is doing fine uh, and the U.S. military is world class, but our political system is in crisis. And for the people that ask me, well, why are we so worried in 2024? I mean, he was president in 2016. It was fine. Yeah, you know, if you're flying a plane at 40,000 feet and it is sunny skies and you hand the controls over for half an hour to someone that doesn't know how to fly a plane, you'll probably be okay. If you are trying to land that plane in a hurricane and you can't see the runway, uh, handing the controls over to someone that you can't trust that doesn't know how to fly a plane real well may well crash the plane. And that is exactly what we're looking at from this 2024 election. It is a very dangerous environment and there is and you have Biden versus Trump who's the stakes of this election for each of them is so much higher. Uh, Trump probably goes to jail if he loses. Biden and many of his advisors think that a politicized IRS, FBI, DOJ under Trump means they'll be investigated. They may face arrest themselves. So the the, the need to ensure that you win and, and to use every method possible, including extra legal, um, is extremely motivating this time around at a time that A majority of the American people don't trust their institutions anymore, don't believe in the legitimacy of this transfer of power. And that's unique. The U.S. has that problem in a way that Japan, Canada, Germany do not. So Mm -hmm. our allies around the world and the leaders that I speak to, they are very deeply concerned about this.
2: Well, and at the same time, you have, uh, for the first time ever, a leading presidential candidate under 91 felony indictments, a number of which are patently ridiculous, some of which arguably are not. But uh, you show a a number of or you uh, you have a number of uh, charts in. This section that show the shocking decline in America's confidence shocking. and everything from the Supreme Court to Congress to the presidency to organized religion to schools to newspapers to, to news on the internet, it's
3: just crazy. It's a cynical, cynical time. Yeah. And and if you had to point to one reason, we know the inequality and we know the identity politics. But um, if you had to point to one, I would say that over the last thirty years. Uh, all of the institutions that help us raise our kids and create civic-minded citizens, the nurture of the American environment have really eroded. The church and its membership has really eroded. The family has really eroded. The school, the public school systems have eroded. The Little League, I mean, all this stuff. And it ha- for a while it wasn't replaced, but now it has been. And it's been replaced by algorithm. It's been replaced by social media and by artificial intelligence that is determining who we connect with, the information we digest, but not to make us civic-minded, instead to addict us and make us better consumers. And, and that is destroying American democracy.
2: Wow, that's another huge topic, but uh, pressed for time, let's move on. How worried about, uh, about the Middle East are you that the uh, conflict between Israel and the various arrayed forces uh, uh, explode into a regional conflict?
3: I'm. I'm. I don't think that we're on track for the U.S. versus Iran at war, which is good because that would be 150 dollars 200 dollar oil and a global recession. Um, but I think the war is going to escalate. It's going to expand. Very hard to see how you maintain uh, the war to the territory largely of Gaza and Hamas, given the threat that the Israeli war cabinet, the whole war cabinet, feels that Hezbollah reflects in the north. Uh, and the need to degrade them, the perceived need uh, to push them back from the border. Also, um, despite America's efforts with allies to deter the Houthis from Yemen from attacking, uh, shipping through the Red Sea, that's not working. And so the likelihood that we have to attack them in Yemen and their bases, expanding the war, not to mention Iranian proxies um, in Syria and Iraq, and of course, The millions and millions of Muslims in the region and in the U.S. and Europe that are becoming more radicalized on the back of all of this, some of whom will turn to violence. It is you look at all of that together and you say, how do we keep this contained to Gaza? It's very, very unlikely.
2: Yikes. All right. Moving on again, far prematurely, uh, the partitioned Ukraine. How could anything change in Ukraine at this point? And what does it mean if it doesn't?
3: Uh, the, The most likely way it changes is the Ukrainians lose support, they get desperate and the Russians are able to take more land. The status quo may also hold. The least likely thing is that the Ukrainians are able to take their land back. So I want them to take their land back. I'm not happy about a partitioned Ukraine. Then again, I'm not happy about the Taliban running Afghanistan or North Korean having nuclear weapons. And those things are true, too. So, I mean, yeah, Ukraine is going to get split in two. And the question is where and how? And no one, no one in Ukraine is going to accept that outcome. And, and the Europeans are mostly not going to accept that. Uh, and a lot of people in the U.S. aren't. But it's becoming divided. Uh, and, you know, we had peak NATO last year. We had peak transatlantic relations last year. It's going to get harder. And that will become even more true when Trump gets the nomination in the United States. Because he, of course, sees Zelensky as a political enemy who refused to do his bidding when he demanded that he open investigations into Biden and his son Hunter. So if he becomes president, he's going to say, you you have to accept Um, a deal with the Russians that will be on its face unacceptable to the Ukrainians. And if not, you're losing all your support and 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 that is going to divide NATO in two. Uh, The Poles, uh, the the uh, the Finns, the Swedes, the Balts on one side, but the Italians and the Hungarians and others joining with Trump and saying, hey, yeah, let's let's work with the Russians again. That is a very serious problem for the EU and for NATO ian bremer
2: of the eurasia group online talking about the top risks of 2024 one more uh has there ever been a wild guessathon more wild than trying to figure out what is ai what's it going to become and what it's going to mean to mankind that's one of your your top risks
3: i'm very excited about what ai is going to mean to mankind economically i think it's incredible Uh, The ability to unlock human capital, to reduce waste in processes and to improve efficiency in every sector, which means, you know, unlike climate change where you move to transition energy and you royally piss off a whole bunch of people that are committed to fossil fuels and are making their money that way. With AI, you know, people that are in existing powerful companies all want to use it. Uh, and so you're going to see rollout much, much faster. That's the good side. And I'm very enthusiastic about that. The bad side is that the tech is moving a lot faster than the ability to regulate it than the governance. And, and so that means that you will have massive proliferation. GPT-5, which makes four look like a child's toy, will come out this year. And it will be in the hands of hundreds of millions of people, some of whom are bad actors some of whom will use it and will use knockoffs that come out months later to um, to to write malware as code and to engage in cyber attacks and to program new weapons like lethal autonomous drones um, and to promote disinformation. And I think 2024 is probably the first year when those disruptions become risks at scale. I realize this is a bit of a
2: childlike uh, summation, but it seems like the good guys are going to get much more efficient and the bad guys are going to get much more efficient with AI, and everything's going to move even faster than it does now.
3: Yeah, I think there are a lot more good guys than bad guys, and uh, I I think this is going to reflect a new uh, wave of globalization, which we desperately need uh, for a planet that is, you know, uh, that, that... that is facing challenges from politics and from climate and the rest. But the question is, how much damage can a relatively small number of people do when they have really powerful weapons? And I I fear we're about to find out. Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group. Ian, it's
2: always stimulating. We'll have a link so that folks can download the entire report for themselves. Great to talk to you and have a great year. So happy to stimulate you. Thank you. (laughs) We'll talk again soon. (laughs) See ya, commie. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Okay. Oh, looking at the clock. We need to take a break. Uh, We can recap a little bit and hit you with some of the other risks. When we come back, stay with us. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Don't say
0: word.
1: Yikes, Stripes, root stripe, gum, it's a yummy fruity one. Stick a stripe of fun with a fly and flip foot. Oh, a pink pot. Yikes, Stripes, root stripe, gum, a wheel, really, real wilder, a ton of fellow mala, flavor wild well exploda. Yikes, Stripes, root stripe gum.
2: Oh, man, that commercial is a little too much. Uh, Fruit Stripe Gum, the classic gum, a gum that got me through many a ball game, is going away after 54 years. Fruit Stripe Gum, a thing of the past. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Not really. No. It's uh, interesting, though. The things that you've always uh, seen around, you think it'll always be around. But I guess kids, do kids even chew gum now? Is gum chewing a thing? Do they worry about that in classes? No chewing gum at school, you're going to stick it under the desk. I mean, that was like an everyday aspect of school. Yeah, kids don't chew it. Do they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I just had a parent tell me that their kids were always chewing gum. Fruit Stripe was a fine gum. Juicy Fruit, another oh, yeah. fine gum. Uh, of course, uh, Hubba Bubba, back yeah. when, the, when the Super Gums came out in the 1970s. A Thick Gum. Yeah, that made it really easy to dissolve the enamel on your teeth. I mean, really efficient. Uh, that was really good. Yeah, thick, super gum. Then, of course, you had the, uh, the cardboard gum from a pack of uh, baseball cards. Enjoyed that. Uh, anyway, fruit stripe gum. Uh, you've, you've served us well. We we wish you well in the afterlife of gums. <laughs> anyway, that uh, that was lighthearted. This is something to worry about. I think, and I am not paranoid on this stuff. I'm not, but I've read a fair amount, and I think this is legit. Clip twenty, Michael. There's a new study out about the water in plastic water bottles. The National Academy of Science says the bottles may contain at least. 100 times more microscopic pieces of plastic than previously thought. An average of 240,000 nanoplastics per bottle. Scientists say there is not enough evidence to detail any long-term health risk. A spokeswoman for the International Bottled Water Association says the study lacks quote, standardized methods. Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, uh, typical of, of uh, mainstream news, I think I'm getting this right. He used microplastics and nanoplastics as if they're the same thing. They're not. The microplastics are a certain you know size. They're teeny tiny. And then nanoplastics are a, a fraction of that. I believe, as a non-paranoiac about the modern world... I believe we're going to figure out all the plastics in our bloodstream are a serious detriment to our health. I don't know will it factor into, uh, you know, Alzheimer's or, or, or Parkinson's, autism, uh, or any or any other specific. I don't know. Obviously, I don't have that that level of expertise in it but it seems impossible to me that we're taking in these zillions of molecules of plastics into our our bloodstream into our organs all of our organs and I can't believe it's doing us any good Story to be uh, watched. Keep an eye on going forward. Uh, Next hour is going to be a good one. A lot of folks don't get the fourth hour of the show live on the air. That's fine. Grab it via podcast. Subscribe to Armstrong and Getty on demand. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, hang out if you can. Armstrong and Getty.
0: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
1: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
0: Wait! Did we just
2: invent California?
3: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
2: This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise.